This is the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, bringing you insights shared from the stage at DOCSF, the Digital Orthopedics Conference hosted by the Department of Orthopedic Surgery at the University of California, San Francisco. Find out more about our conference and join our community by visiting docsf.health, docsf.health. Welcome back to the Digital Orthopedics Podcast. My name is Dr. Stefano Bini, the founder and chair of the Digital Orthopedics Conference, San Francisco, otherwise known as DocSF. I am a host for the podcast series. On our last podcast, we heard from Duncan Bradley from McLaren, the automotive company. He discussed how sensors revolutionized the automotive industry, starting with Formula One cars. And following Duncan, we heard from Dr. Ashish Atreja, the CIO at Mount Sinai, who shared with us his vision of how sensor data and apps will impact the delivery of care. And we're fortunate to have Dan Kendall, the host and founder of Digital Health Today, the leading digital health podcast as our moderator. Today, we will take a deep dive into one company that has built a sensor with a very specific goal in taking it to market. Let's take it up with Dr. Peter Schilling and his amazing panel of experts in one of the breakout rooms at DocSF 2019 as they introduce a team from OrthoSensor. All right, folks, I think we're going to get rolling here with this case study. So we're going to be talking about OrthoSensor. So this is a perfect example of a sensor being used to help with surgical decision-making within the operating room. So I think this is a, it's going to be great. We've got a great panel up here. I'm Peter Schilling. I'm an orthopedic surgeon myself, and I work for Suki AI, building a digital assistant for doctors. And uh, up front here on our panel, uh, we have Archana Dubé, who's with Hewlett Packard. We have, we have Mark uh, Augusti, who's uh, with uh, Conformis Implant uh, Manufacturer. We have Mark Goldberg with Goldstein, Goldstein with UCSF Health Hub. And we have Leslie Black, who is with uh, the uh, uh, Jackson Square Consulting Group. Uh, ben Levy, Bootstrap Labs, and then I'm going to leave the two of you to introduce yourselves because you're going to be talking about what you've done. Great. Thanks, Peter. Anyway, my name is Michael Condit. Uh, Matthias Verstrate is with me. Uh, we work at OrthoSensor, and we were asked um, by Stefano to present a bit about our company as well as um, what we do, but also as we built our company, maybe some obstacles we came across along the way that we had to overcome as this may apply to anyone who's trying to innovate. So we have been around a while. If anyone's started a company or been at a startup, these things don't happen overnight. Uh, we were founded in 2007. Uh, we've, we've raised some significant money to date, which is necessary to develop technology, to build a workforce, to uh, commercialize a product. Uh, we're based in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. And we currently have done over 50,000 procedures. Um, we are in over 120 hospitals and we operate um, in countries all around the world, which is great. Uh, it's a little bit about who we are, what we do. We make, I won't read this slide. In fact, I'll just go to the next one and tell you a little bit about what our goal is and what our product is. We make sensors that are used uh, intraoperatively during a total knee procedure. And the sensor quantifies uh, both the tensions in the collateral ligaments as well as the contact point and the rotation and alignment of the, 
device while you're putting in a total knee. So there's probably, how many are orthopedic surgeons in the room? All right, so when you're doing a total knee, uh, there's two things you're, you're shooting for. You're trying to align the components properly to the bones, and then you're trying to create a soft tissue envelope uh, that is balanced correctly. So the springs that are holding it all together need to be um, tensioned and balanced correctly. Now, in orthopedics and knee arthroplasty, there has been technology for years to align the components correctly, and not just mechanical tools, but also computer navigation and, and advanced technologies and even robotics to help align the components relative to the bones. But there hasn't been technology really to help you determine how happy the soft tissues are with where you put the components. So what we've done is created this disposable trial component. I have one in my pocket if you want to see one afterwards. You see a picture of one there. It's dimensionally equivalent to the tibial trial that's used during the procedure. Uh, you put this in while you're trialing and you take the knee through a range of motion and it tells you basically what the balance is between the medial and the lateral compartments throughout the range of motion. And this is important because then it can drive some decisions to such as whether to maybe do some soft tissue releases or maybe to even um, cut your bone differently, which will then allow you to create a balanced knee and have your patient leave uh, the OR with hopefully what's um, the most optimal functional uh, placement and balance. So this is interoperative. It's wireless. It uses these sensors that then go through an RF signal to a tablet that's in the OR that you see here, and it's showing you the loads. And that's, that's what the device does. And as I said this morning, um, this quantification of the numbers, you see 14 and 15 on there, those, that's the load in each compartment. This is a quantification of something that had never been quantified before. This had always been in the past a, just a feel, an art, a gestalt thing. Uh, when surgeons did procedures before our device, they did what you see here. They manually held the knee, they wiggled it back and forth, and what they're trying to tell just through feeling with their hands is what the tension is in those ligaments that are lighting up red as they're being tensed there. So the focus on, you know, you want alignment, stability, and balance, as I said. And aside from uh, this feel, some surgeons do things like stick in um, an osteotome. They're called surgical spoons because they're sort of curved on the end. But they'll put them in each compartment and kind of yank on it and feel how tight that feels. And the way total knees are taught is a master does a surgery and does what you see here and says, this feels like a good knee. And then he has all the residents and fellows come up and say, feel this. This is what your knees need to feel like. There's no quantification at all. And this is why uh, surgeons feel like they uh, um, are really kind of artists and are really, uh, a lot of times they feel like they can't be replaced by technology because what could possibly do that? Well, this actually can. So... With this technology, we are now quantifying this. And now you see in, this, in the video, uh, as you do this, you see the loads raise and lower on either side, and it gives the surgeon feedback. They can do this through the range of motion. And that's what, our tech, that's what we designed our technology to do to help with this part of the procedure. Now, the obstacle that I want to talk about is that once you quantify something, once you put a number on something that there was never a number before, uh, everyone you talk to, whether it's a potential customer or an investor or or even um, regulatory bodies, they immediately say, oh, you have a number? Well, then what's the right number? What's the target? How do you know? How close do I have to get to that? Um, what's the difference between 10, 20, 30, 40? What's, you know, what, 
provides the, the best clinical outcomes? And those are all valid questions, but you can't assume that just because you've now quantified something that you immediately know what that means in terms of clinical decisions. There's this big step in between where data actually leads to insights. And if you're really good at how you collect insight and how you evaluate that, if you're thorough and you're thoughtful about it, you can hopefully come up with informed clinical decisions. But that's not easy. It takes time. It takes money. You're a startup. You have a certain amount of money. And this is not specific to us. I was in robotics uh, with Mako. Through the growth of Mako, we had the same exact problem. We were able to align components to bones accurately, but every surgeon said, well, what should the target be? And I would say, well, aren't you the surgeon? Don't you know what the target is? Well, they know what the target is when they're doing it manually, again, through art, but not the exact numbers they're shooting for. The same thing goes with balance. So what I want to present to you today is a little bit about how we built these insights. So we feel like we now have good algorithms for what to do with the numbers that you get from the device. But Again, it wasn't easy. We did prospective studies. We did, um, we've done a number of randomized controlled trials. We currently have five ongoing randomized controlled trials. And this is sort of the, the brute force method of building insights. It's building a big database where you have all these patient demographics and preoperative information. You have this, this live uh, streaming intraoperative data that we have. And then we collect postoperative outcomes, functional outcomes, and the way to do this in the past and the way we've done it is you build this big database and you look for correlations and you say, okay, here's the right number. This equals a good outcome. Well, as you've seen, if you've been listening today, uh, there are smarter ways to do that. And we are pursuing those now in terms of artificial intelligence and machine learning. If you're doing the old brute force method, there's some minimum number of patients you need in this big database before you can be confident of these correlations. But the beauty of machine learning is from case one, you're building knowledge and it has value from the beginning and can often find these insights that you don't even, you wouldn't even think to look for. And that's the, the problem with the first method is you often need to know a priori what your correlations might be, but machine learning finds those for you. And that's, that's certainly where we're headed. And that's where I would suggest um, in the future, as you're, if you're building a program like this, uh, you should focus on so what we did, we built clinical evidence and Ashish spoke, the last speaker from Mount Sinai was talking about evidence-based medicine, evidence-based digital medicine. Again, I think this can, this can be streamlined a bit with some machine learning, um, but we were looking at what is the target? How do you get there? What procedures lead to certain load numbers that you measure? We had to do all of this uh, under the... Um, with the understanding that we would have to convert any clinical benefits we measure to economic benefits. And that's how we built our clinical um, evidence or our clinical strategy. We did this through research grants. We did this through sponsored studies. As I said, we've, you know, like every company, we have key opinion leaders that we rely on heavily. And then we go out and, and, and do trial, multi-center trials, randomized trials, all these types of things to build the evidence. So, what did we find? And we found a lot of things, but I thought one uh, nugget that if you're kind of seeing this for the first time is, is a bit of a take-home message. Every surgeon, when they do a total knee and they do their manual uh, feel and they do some soft tissue balancing or some recuts, and we have a surgeon on the panel, pretty much every patient, when they leave the OR, they think is balanced. They would not leave the OR 
they, you don't just give up. You don't just say, wow, that's really unbalanced, but I just, I'm just gonna, I got tea time or whatever. You, you do everything you can to balance a knee. And without the sensor, if I asked a surgeon how many of your knees are balanced, you would say, oh, 99 out of 100, maybe you have one extreme deformity or something that's a little bit difficult. But that is the goal, and that's, that's, um, that's how you're taught, and that's what you do. Well, what we did is a series of studies where we had surgeons do that, and they give us a thumbs up, and then we go in and put in the sensor, and we measure what the loads are. And we actually found out that only half of the time are they actually balanced. And it's different. You can see this is inflection and extension, and there's a lot of minutiae to this story. But in fact, you simply cannot feel balance on the, you can't feel the tension in the ligaments by holding often a morbidly obese leg and wiggling it back and forth. Uh, it's just a difficult thing to do. And in fact, um, we've done learning curve studies and this, this isn't, having the feedback is not something you can then learn because if you use the sensor for, for a while and you get and you end up with actual, actually balanced knees, and then you stop using the sensor, you don't retain the feel in your hands. You simply can't feel that, that load differential that you need through the manual techniques. So that's really what is surprising. It's, um, you know, surgeons say, well, you know, the thing I learned most when I started using the sensor was how bad a surgeon I was. And that's not exactly fair. I mean, these, you're doing the best you can with what you have, but we have information now that can help you. So then what do you do with the numbers when you get this imbalance? We, again, through uh, prospective studies where we look at outcomes versus these loads, as well as randomized studies across different implants, different preoperative alignments, we feel like we have a pretty good algorithm decision tree where if you see a certain load or load differential, this is an app that, a training app that we uh use called touch surgery, which a lot of companies use this to train surgical techniques. If you see a certain imbalance, you just follow this um, kind of choose your own adventure and it tells you what you should do. This soft tissue release and here's a surgical video for that. Or perhaps you should recut your bone in a degree more valgus or whatever it is to get to the, to the right balance. And so, but this has been a long process. And again, from day one, when we told people we had we were able to measure numbers. They expected us to have this, and it just took it just took a while. Well, does balance matter? Well, we've done, again, a number of these studies. This first graph is from a randomized controlled trial. These are all statistically significant. Patients who have a balanced knee have less pain, better function, higher satisfaction. MUA, that's a manipulation under anesthesia. That's a... Uh, that's a really an indicator of a stiff or an unbalanced knee. If a patient early on can't reach a certain degree of flexion, they put them under anesthesia and just crank the shit out of their leg until things loosen up, um, it's, which is why they're under anesthesia. Uh, and we've seen in this, this is a study from Columbia with 800 patients in it. And we've seen it in other studies as well that your manipulation rate drops significantly. Manipulations like this happen with usually within the first 90 days after surgery. So if you're in a bundled system, this is a significant cost uh, savings. Is it money well spent? Uh, again, we've done a lot of work trying to transfer clinical benefits to economic benefits. And we've also done quality studies. This is, this is kind of your classic uh, healthcare economics cost effectiveness curve. This is the upper quadrant of the famous quadrant where you're looking at improvements in health versus the cost of an intervention. Uh, and this 
Goldilocks line, which is basically if you're above that, you're not effective. If you're below that, you're effective. We as a company don't have any control over that. That's usually set by policy or determined by the country you're in or whatever it is. But depending on what paper you're on, it's usually between 50 to now uh, a New England Journal of Medicine uh, article recently set up to 200,000 US dollars per quality as cost effective. Our technology is a $500 disposable sensor, falls right in line. When we work backwards from our clinical benefits, we could charge as much as $2,700 for this and still be cost effective. So the things we're saving money by lowering manipulation rates, lowering readmissions, decreasing physical therapy visits, decreasing subsequent visits to uh, the surgeon within that 90-day window. Um, what did we learn? This robust data is really key. It's hard building the big database and looking for correlations. That's all we knew to do five, 10 years ago when we started this. We are kind of redoing it with some machine learning algorithms. We have more data, not just from sensors. There's other navigation systems, robotics. There's other things in the OR that are feeding data that we may be able to feed into a, a machine learning algorithm as well. Moving on from the knee, we uh, there are plenty of other procedures where this balancing is key. You see a picture on the right of a um, shoulder sensor. It's actually a reverse shoulder sensor, which has the exact same problem of, you know, a surgeon pulls on the arm and looks for a certain amount of opening. There's no standardization at all on how hard he pulls on the arm. I was talking to a shoulder surgeon and they're looking for a certain opening. They're looking for like a millimeter or two millimeters of opening. When they do that and I ask the surgeon, well, what happens if you don't see a millimeter of opening when you pull on it? He goes, well, I pull harder. I'm like, well, I don't, that's not really a standardized technique. So we're working on technology um, in other joints. This could obviously be applicable for the hip as well, particularly in dysplasia where you're kind of relocating the acetabulum. We, you know, sensors intraoperatively are certainly important, but this episode of care, this 90-day window um, knowing what patients are doing is key. The other picture you see here is a wearable. We're working on a wearable for um, to track physical therapy, uh, following the procedure, actually preoperatively as well as following the procedure. You know, we've also, uh, I love to, someone used a word earlier, incitables. We always called them implantables, but I like incitables. We're working on some sensors that you could perhaps put inside an implant or inside a patient that is 100% compliance. You no longer have to base all of your decisions or how well a procedure works or how well an implant works on asking a patient three months after surgery, are you happy today? Because if they got shitty coffee that day, they're like, eh, I'm not doing that great. Well, and you're, we're making clinical decisions based on that. So this is just our overall these sensors, we can we can do things preoperatively. We are currently and have most experience intraoperatively. We're about to move into postoperative measurement of these things. And all these data streams are great, but they really don't mean anything unless you can link them to patient factors and postoperative outcomes. And so we have built a cloud-based registry to do this, to where these data streams, you can you can interject any type of data stream uh, that uh, that you can develop into this to create these large machine learning algorithms. I think that's the, the, the idea, the sensors and data analytics, really, we want to make every next orthopedic patient benefit from not just that surgeon's previous experience, but every previous experience with the device. That's all I got.
Thanks, Michael. That was that was great. Uh, from the orthopedic surgeon's perspective, yes, this is a real issue in the operating room. And what I like about it is it's a very discreet problem. And to actually then be able to have quantifiable information as a surgeon to be able to make a judgment. Uh, we hear a lot about AI. And I kind of like in this instance, the application of the word IA, which is intelligence assist, and to actually have actionable information, to make good decisions. But let's open it up to the other folks. Mark, you're from within this same industry, Conformis, and uh, we just wanted to hear some of your comments about the approach. Thanks, Peter. Appreciate it. Well, uh, I'm familiar with OrthoSensor, and as you said, they're going after a discrete problem. And uh, I think the, the issue is exactly as Michael framed it. If you get down to the kernel is they're giving data that hasn't been available before they're taking something that was um, really more of a an experiential feel or a training and trying to quantify it and the challenge is is how do you then take that information and present it in a way that it's actionable for the surgeon and in order to to get that is the biggest challenge i think and this is a question i have for ortho sensors how how do you work with enough clinicians, enough surgeons, enough centers to really figure out what the right targets are. That, that to me, is, is the problem you've got. It's a tough problem because it's not, it's not black and white. I mean, it's not when we looked at our first study, when we looked at, well, what load equals better outcomes? So we have outcomes versus load. And it's not like everyone's doing great. And at some level, everyone's doing shitty. It's, there's a gradual change and there's people who are unbalanced that do well on patient reported outcomes, which is more a comment on patient reported outcomes and on balancing. And so, yeah, it's, it's a difficult issue. Our approach has been gather as much data as we possibly can, because that's, that can't be a bad thing. I'm really excited to see what machine learning and algorithms that, that don't have the paradigms, like we assume balance would mean better, satisfaction or range of motion or something. We just, those are just intuitive connections, but machine learning doesn't give a crap about that paradigm. They just look for any type of connection. And that's where some creative uh, thoughts might come from. We've got an expert up here on applied AI. Uh, ben, I'd like to hear your comments. Yes, for context, we're in a, an AI-focused VC firms and we do invest in applied AI solutions. So, you know, the first question we always ask our founders is, it's not so much about the AI, it's about what is the valuable problem you're solving. So, you know, I'm looking at, at your company. And so, first of all, congratulations to be alive like 11 years afterwards. $145 million in financing. And I was it's, like, that's an achievement. It's been a breeze. There's nothing. <laughs> yeah, yeah, I'm sure. It's a cakewalk. It's a park. walk in the park. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I'm looking at this. I'm like, as an early stage guy, I'm like, I'm running the opposite direction. Now, the, the good and bad news, and look, you have this sunk investment into all these studies, and congratulations for coming through with them. Now you have that data. So that's becoming more interesting, more exciting technology and the ability to compute faster. Uh, still, some of the challenges I see, and I think they're back to the point you were making earlier in a different way. I'm like, how can we build an accurate digital twin of the patient before, during, and after? Because to your point, it's so, sub, you know, it's so on some level subjective. Yeah. At the same time, it's like, it's not happening frequently enough or so costly and expensive and doing these trials. I mean, I can just imagine the, he the headaches you went through. So when you're trying to do valuable thing with AI, it's all about the insight you get out of the data. And so, you know, to your point, I mean, is it good? Is it bad? I mean, it seems like with 50% accuracy, I mean, you know, if you're not moving the needle significantly enough in the outcome, then, you know, again, it's all perception. So all these things are really hard. And so, 
you know, again, as, as, as an investor, I'm looking at it and say, well, you're past the stage we are playing. Uh, but I like what you're doing, which is, okay, look, we have this sunk investment, we have this data, and we want to build a mod around it. I'm going to start throwing everything that are the new tools and technologies and starting to leverage what I have, which is that data, to drive more insight and to try to lower the cost of getting to that insight because so far it's been expensive. You're right. And I think it'll come in waves. I mean, I think initially, if you look at the 50% that are unbalanced, in cases where the surgeon thought they were balanced, some of those are grossly imbalanced. And that's easy. That's, that's like, uh, we can guide you to a much more balanced knee where it's going to be tricky and where the sort of, I don't know what percentage it is, but at some point we're going to get down to the point, well, is 20 better than 25, better than 30? And does that depend on what other factors does that depend on? And we just, we, yeah, we don't know those answers yet, but we, like you said, we're not, we're not ready to give up by any means. So, um, I, Another question. Uh, I think in orthopedics, this kind of statement ends up sort of sounding like a little like a wet blanket, but we're always looking for like two year or more outcomes, right? And that's really hard. Yeah. So in the meantime, as a startup, you have to figure out how to survive that length of time that you can see those long-term outcomes. In this case, I think you know, that patients are satisfied. They're not going back for revisions, which are very expensive. And what sort of partnerships do you need to be able to move the ball forward on that until you get enough data to make those insights? And perhaps someone here on the panel could also speak to that as well. Well, I think, I think you can answer that question. And then I have a couple questions, one as a clinician and the second as a payer. Uh, so why don't you address well, uh, Peter's question? Briefly, for this particular issue, which is a focused, I mean, we focused on a particular issue as you said, and Mark said, it's the beauty of that is the issues with an unbalanced knee occur pretty quickly. It, it was the opposite when we were working in robotics and we said, we are aligning a component a little bit better. Let's wait 10 years to see if that affects um, survivorship. So the issues we're looking at, there's, it can still be you know kind of up to two years, but we're not we're not in the sort of new implant design world of, okay, does this slight change in radius or whatever it is make a difference 10 years down the road? So we're really looking at some of these early return um, PT uh, things, which are, which is good for the economic story as well for, uh, for the bundled payment. But it's in terms of partners, you just, you got to have really motivated surgeons. Every surgeon says they collect data and, and can help out and and hardly anyone does properly and it's it's a difficult it's a difficult problem. So the question as a clinician is twofold. One is how do you insert your product in the workflow? From I know that studies you also have a three year long study that I was looking into. Mm -hmm. So so you do have plenty of data, but how do you put yourself in the mix of it becomes a universal adoption. And, and the second question is, clinically, every patient is different that's going on the OR um, table. So they could have advanced OA that has already tightened ligaments and other things going on. So their outcome could be very different than somebody who is a post-traumatic OA that has a better ligament going in. So how do you factor in that data discrepancy from preoperative status of the person and then post-operative outcome with your device in place? Super questions. The first one, the workflow is, is a pretty simple swap because it, it takes the place of 
something already existing in the workflow. So the tibial trial, which is used in the normal procedure when the surgeon puts that in and then does the thing with with his eyes closed, we now, we just replace that. It's dimensionally equivalent. It's used exactly the same way. So again, um, to reference robotics, it's not a very big disruption in the workflow at all. To your second point, wow, what that's, I don't know. It's the, right now, when you talk to surgeons, there's a general understanding that not just depending on the disease state, but depending on your genetics, I mean, different, your DNA determines what mix of collagen types you have. And so surgeons say, well, I do the guitar string. I'm like, what? Well, I just go in there and I, I pluck the MCL and then I get an idea of how loose that patient is. Or another surgeon said, well, I ask every one of my patients if when they were kids, did they do goofy things like bend their thumb back and twist their arm around their head to freak out their friends? If they did, then I know that they have a more lax joint and they'll be more happy with, there's got to be a better way. So right now that is still, that is not in our software or recommendations or anything. That's, that's still in this with the surgeon. But I certainly believe that there's got to be ways of assessing those things through a number of, of ways, uh, through genetic screening and other things to where you could go into the OR and the surgeon would be told for this patient, these are the right numbers. We're just, we're just not there yet. So it's in your pipeline. Yeah. The second, like everything else. Yeah, the second question is a pair perspective, because I work in the benefit design as a global medical director at HP. Okay. So we cover lives and needs. Who is going to pay for this and how are you bundling it into the workflow? So right now it's paid for, it's just paid for by the hospital. So the hospital absorbs the cost of the sensor because hopefully we've been able to prove to them that it, not everyone's in the bundle, but if they're in the bundle, for instance, I can show some data that shows you'll actually save some money from PT visits and other things. Getting reimbursement for something like this, and I've been in this field for a while, and it's in, in arthroplasty in particular, it's really difficult to get reimbursements for these additional things. Even, you know, navigation, 15 years later, it gets 100 bucks or whatever it is, even though they've been shown that they're preventing all these uh, outlier cases, um, it still remains to be seen what will happen with robotics. So I'm, I'm not quite sure how uh, this will play out economically. We've been challenged with, I mean, if the U.S. is different in Japan, I think we're about to get reimbursement in Japan at some level based on our data. And that just, that'll make all the difference in the world in adoption. And every surgeon that tries this out or sees it says, yeah, if that was, if that was free, I'd use it on every single case. Well, that means it has some value. We just have to figure out how to get it paid for. What's the alternative, right? I think there's, you need to calibrate the expectations. So we're trying to optimize for perfection, but maybe these people coming in to your point, sorry, you're only looking at a mild improvement, but at least you won't be the rest of your life on a wheelchair. Yeah. And so what's the cost to society and a healthcare system of someone spending their lives, the rest of their lives, and sometimes very young, on wheelchairs? I think the problem with arthroplasty is it's, it's such a dramatic improvement from the procedure itself that the incremental benefits you get from doing it better are kind of dwarfed by the big jump in the procedure itself. So it's difficult to get that add on. Um, I'm going to s- switch the topic. Um, I'm uh, Mark Goldstein. I run the UCSF, something we're calling UCSF Health Hub, and it's our growth studio. And we spend all our time working with early stage companies, um, also a VC and uh, with uh, Ben. So first of all, 11 years, that's really impressive. That's a long time. 
Now, a lot's changed in 11 years, and I think we've heard, we've heard this uh, this morning and up until now. In how you would think about a company, how would you think of an opportunity where, you know, we've heard about patients first, and we've heard about here you have basically built out some sensors, some really good sensors that uh, get implanted. The same time you have pre and post. And I think about your solution as maybe it's time for a slight pivot. I can't speak. Sounds like Japan is going along fine. You don't want to mess with that. But um, you have an opportunity to create really a smart need and to do a lot more and think about it. Think about a lot more around partnerships. Think about building an app. Think about going into a doctor and say, you're going to give basically your next patient this, this app that's going to basically uh, help them uh, pre-surgery, uh, post-op, and basically help them through the tracking process. But basically giving them a smart me so that there's push and pull, which is another thing about what we heard about this morning, which is that, you know, these are the, the new solutions. If you were going to start a company in 2019, that's 12 years, by the way, whoa. And uh, 2019, you would have to think, you'd be thinking very different. Now, you made the really great decision 12 years ago to go into a market that's the fastest growing market in healthcare, which is, you know, knee and hip. So take advantage of that but also take advantage of the fact, in my mind, that you can really expand what it is your, your solution could be and then make people like Ashana really, really, really happy and, uh, you know, and make sure that they're, uh, um, you're getting uh, your, your codes and everything much, that much more quickly. So, uh, so I, I'm, I'm Leslie, and I'm going to pivot on what the last two people both said because I came from the payer side also um, from multiple health plans and, and also many years with self-funded employers on par with your company. So I was going to say one of the challenges is expressing it in the terms that people like us greet this type of innovation with open arms and not fear of accelerated increases in costs. And one of the ways to do that, I think, is exactly what Mark was talking about, which is to take a look at it longitudinally. And do you avert an acute injury from becoming a chronic patient and a chronic condition to where some or all loss of mobility eventually becomes an increase in BMI, which eventually becomes comorbid for any number of things that hit the medical plan, right? And now we've blossomed into a large claim that's never going to go away. Not to mention the loss of productivity, possibly even the loss of being at work and being out on a long-term disability or workers' comp claim. So that's kind of the way we look at it. And I think some of the things that you had at the end slide where you could put together maybe a series of your inventions to, you know, help somebody in the outpatient setting to help them if their problem's cropping up again so they don't become a repeat procedure. All of that is, is there's a lot of promise there, I think. I love those suggestions. And that's this... This strategy or this um, vision isn't a 12-year-old vision. This is built from thinking about these things, things changing. We are working on this recovery progression, this app that you see there, trying to engage the patient so that they own a part of their recovery and we you know, kind of own or at least are able to know what's going on with them because arthroplasty is one of those weird things. I mean, these are fairly healthy patients, they come to see you, or if they're doing well, you may not, I mean, they often skip their visits. You see them one, two, maybe five years, sometimes not at all. So to, to know, and the, and the ones that do poorly usually don't go back to, I don't mean to point it to you, the ones that do poorly would go back to the surgeon who <laughs> uh, operated on them. They often don't go back to them. They go to someone else. And so it's, it's, they're, they're often lost. And so by, by creating kind of an ecosystem uh, like that, I think is a good way to keep track of that. Yeah, so just highlighting, I think, what you say, you're going longitudinally and you're trying to be more continuous in the capture of data exactly. and information, shortening your feedback loop, 
right? You talk about the 90 days afterward. I mean, in, in what we do is so vital that you have this feedback loop uh, faster on how the you know how your patient is doing post-surgery yeah. and everything. And then I think maybe for the audience that's interesting, who are the very patient investors that have supported you over this evolution as a company? I think the type of, you don't have to share names, but the type of investors. So I think it's, I think for everybody out there in the healthcare world, uh, you should walk in with your eyes wide open. I mean, venture capital funds are the 10 year life cycle. Yeah. We know we have exemptions to extend one more year, one more year, twice. But after 12 years, we know. <laughs> our, our CEO said in the audience, he may be able to speak to this a little better. I would just say they're, they're friends. They're family some, offices. No, but some of them are investors that, uh, so the CEO and myself and a lot of people at this company also created and built Mako Surgical. So we made a group of people a whole lot of money in that ride. And that, that buys us some patience on this round. Would you say that's, that's fair? So again, I go back to, you picked the right space. You obviously, you've thought about ways in which you can be embedded in the knee, which is huge. You know, it's probably the hardest thing that you've actually figured out the hardest thing. And now thinking through, it's 2019. What's the business model? What's the, how does it, how, if you were to close your eyes and you were sitting here in Silicon Valley, how would you basically rethink your business? And it's just a tweak. I really think it's a tweak. And you obviously have super patient uh, uh, investors and supportive people for good reason. And uh, come in six months, I think you could, you know, this, this, gra this chart, while exciting, still feels to me dated. You know, it just feel, it doesn't feel like there's, there's something, you know, I'm looking at that screen alone. And so I think you can basically, you, you can really do, you know, some very easy short-term work, make a big difference. Well, I think the, from business model perspective, I do see immense promise in people who own the risk of that knee. That's where your business model will come from. And a large number of those folks are either patients or self-insured employers. And if you can work with consultant benefit companies and other things to build that as part of benefit design, that every knee is required to have your device, knee replacement needs to have your device in there, it will go quickly to the market. Um, the other thing is that working with Surgeon Striker, you already have, uh, you know, multiple deals with, you know, knee replacement companies. This could be an upgrade that the patient can opt, opt in for. So that's something, those are a couple ways for you to look into, quickly go to the market, because you already have a working device in hand. So those are a couple things. I think with that, actually, to stay on time, we have to wrap it up. Those were fantastic comments. Thank you very much for the panel. Thank you very Thank you. much for the presentation. Great stuff. Thank you. On this sixth episode of the Digital Orthopedics Podcast, we heard how OrthoSensor brought their technology to market. We heard a robust discussion on how various players in the ecosystem look at the introduction of new technologies, their costs, and their value. We love these robust and deep exchanges of ideas, the varied perspectives that our panelists bring to bear on the questions at hand broaden everyone else's viewpoint. In our next episode, which will be number seven in our series, we will turn our attention to the financial side of innovation with our friends from JP Morgan Private Banking. They put together an outstanding panel of experts to explain to us how the financial markets look at innovation in healthcare. Our next podcast is therefore a great example of how at DocSF, we bring to our audience the voices and perspectives of innovators and leaders that they may not otherwise encounter. 
We hope you enjoyed listening to these presentations delivered in San Francisco from the DocSF stage in early January 2019. We thank you for joining our journey as we catalyze the adoption of digital health tools in healthcare and use orthopedics as the uniting paradigm. Please become part of our community at docsf.health. We want to work with you to make the future of healthcare present. I am your host, Stefano Bini, on the Digital Orthopedics Podcast from DocSF. Farewell for now.